Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the We Belong Here podcast powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and I'm really excited about uh, today's podcast because we, we are here in the midst of the election uh, this year, and obviously we don't know the outcome yet, but I have three guests who are uh, all amazing. They're going to all introduce themselves, and they're gonna, you know, we're going to talk about the elections. We're going to talk about belonging. We're going to talk about their own stories, who they are, and they're all going to be able to uh, talk about a project that they are working on. So we have uh, Markham, Kermai, and Colleen. So I'm going to have them introduce themselves in a quick couple of sentences in that order. So go ahead. Hi, everybody. My name is Markham McIntyre. Currently, I'm the acting president and CEO for the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. We represent businesses large and small across the region, and I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. Kermai? Hi, everyone. This is Gurmai Zahalai. I'm a King County Council member representing District 2. I'm also excited to be here. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Colleen Echohawk. I'm an enrolled member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. I also belong to the Upper and Athabascan people of Metasta Lake. I am also an urban native person. I'm one of 80,000 urban native people who live here in King County. Uh, my day job is as the executive director of the wonderful Chief Seattle Club, supporting our one um, our relatives who have been experiencing homelessness at much higher rates than anyone else in our region, and providing housing um, for them. I'm glad to be here. Glad to support this um, awesome work of Civic Commons. Wonderful. I'm really excited to have you all uh, here today because you represent from you come from different jobs, sectors, backgrounds, lived experiences. And so, as we always do in this podcast, we're going to start with a check-in question, and we're going to start in the same order. So, it's going to be Markham, Germay, and Colleen. And I'm going to have you answer this question. As we sit here, or as you sit here, uh, thinking about yourself and your own experiences, in the middle of an election that we don't know the outcome of, we're seeing a lot of things that are happening. There's, uh, there's protests happening from different sides of the, the spectrum in different parts of the country. There is uh, lots of uh, legal wranglings and maybe some people might say shenanigans happening with uh, the counting and the voting. Mm-hmm. But how does this make you feel in terms of belonging? Like, how does how is this election making you feel in terms of like how you belong or maybe you don't belong? Um, so please check in and maybe answer that question and where you're feeling that way. It is funny because we, you know, we talked about the timing of this podcast. We, I think we thought we'd be farther along, maybe. Um, yep, yep. This actually is probably right where we should be. Um, I feel discombobulated because of the election. Um, I'm pretty happy about some of the ballot measures and how some of the candidates have done locally. So I feel like there's been some local progress and some reaffirmation of some of our priorities around transit and Harborview um, and certainly Gurmai, I hope you'll talk a little bit about the charter amendments and, and those um, how those fared. But it does feel like we're in a, I feel like I'm in a series of concentric bubbles. So I've got like my my little bubble with my family and, and kind of our COVID bubble. And then I've got kind of my ideological bubble. And then I've got like my geographic bubble. And I feel like those are so distant from what I'm seeing around the country. Um And my feelings about the presidency and some of the larger issues of the day, I feel, again, discombobulated, like I'm I'm off a little bit of drift, which is nice, but it certainly doesn't feel like that's actually going to have kind of large scale impact until we can um, 
find some common ground. Um, but I also worry about what that common ground looks like because the, the sides are so far apart from each other that coming to the middle doesn't feel right to me. Like that's not an acceptable answer, but I don't know exactly what to do next. So I feel discombobulated. Um, I guess I also feel somewhat hopeful just because I'm generally an optimist. And I think a lot of people are feeling the same way. And so if enough people feel the same way, then they might be willing to try something different. And that always gives me hope when you can, when you can really try something different, when you feel like everything around you is not working the way you'd like to have it work. Mm. Yeah. It's a difficult question belonging because there are so many layers to it. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I, belong when a racist, sexist, xenophobic president is getting, you know, 70 million votes in this country that just shows that there's a huge part of this nation that wants this to remain um, a white supremacist nation. Then there's the question of, can you belong on stolen land, on land that didn't belong to anybody who's uh, here other than indigenous and native peoples who are here and continue to be here? Um, so it's a, you know, belonging, I think is a difficult question to answer, but I do find belonging in our collective pursuit toward justice. I think that is what makes me feel belonging. I see so many movements around the country, people rising up, people voting at unprecedented records, people shouting that we need to be more inclusive and really demand equity in ways that I haven't seen our governments do. Um, and it feels like the needle is finally starting to move and people are beginning to understand what equity truly means. I feel belonging as one piece of that broader collective struggle. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. I relate so much to what you just shared. I think that for me, being a part of a democratic process, um, I don't ever feel like I belong in that part of, of, of it, you know, uh, I've been a part of in this past election and in the previous election as well to try to get out the native vote. And um, it is really hard to do. We are the least likely to want to vote in these in elections or presidential elections, local elections. Um, and it is because there is um, uh, there feels like there can't be belonging um, in uh, uh, in the larger process because it has been um, set up in a way to intentionally keep me and my um, and my relatives out of it. So um, there is a um, it, the democratic process and, and the election process now often feels like a, a battle, a struggle to try to to try to have um, voice, to try to have representation, and then also to remain um, authentic to my identity as an indigenous person of this land, not necessarily of this land here in Seattle, but of, and, and this, this country. So um, belonging is, is hard to feel. Um, I also just completely relate to um, the, the very dissatisfying uh, and um, harmful vote that we see out there where so many people in this country voted for uh, absolute racist president. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm not surprised. I predicted this. I didn't think it was going to be um, a sweeping, um, you know, 
I didn't, I didn't, I thought this was going to happen. I still feel like we're in danger. Um, so um, it's hard to feel belonging in that context, but I do feel belonging um, to, um, to our, to our city. I feel belonging to our individuals that, um, that, that are, are working so hard to, to try to make change. And I feel belonging in the movement. So um, I'm grateful for that. Awesome. Thank you. It's a, uh, it's, you know, this question, I didn't know how it would land just because I didn't know where we would be in this moment. But um, just to echo some of the sentiments that you all have, I definitely feel discombobulated. I can't even say that word because I feel so discombobulated. Wow. Discombobulated. Mark, and thanks for putting a really tough word out there for people to try to repeat saying and then uh, failing twice. I, we had a meeting with uh, staff today, uh, I guess yesterday, the time difference is a little weird to think about what days which, but I shared the same thoughts. Um, I had a, a meeting with the leadership tomorrow's executive committee um, on the board this morning, and I shared some similar thoughts as well around, you know, just seeing like the the heartache of seeing so many people come out to vote, but also continue to look at the last four years and some of the sentiments around like white supremacy and the not disavowing it, but actually like tacitly, uh, you know, supporting it. Um, just the policies of families being torn apart at the border, uh, obviously the pandemic and, you know, so many lives lost. And it's tough to see that people come out and want four more years of that. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm here in South Korea. I'm in the country where I was born, where my people are from the land that my parents and my ancestors, uh, lived on. Uh, and that's a, this is a country also that has lots of history with authoritarian leaders, with other countries and, uh, and imperialists and being colonized and, you know, taken, been taken over by other countries and forced to like suppress our own culture and, you know, taking people into like forced like sexual slavery. So there's a lot of like this. It's interesting just being here and watching this happen across the Pacific uh, back home. And so it's really, it's definitely discombobulating there. I said it. Um, all right. So thank you everyone for sharing. The next part of the the, the podcast is to ask to, to see how, you know, to, to learn more about yourself. So you're going to each get a chance to tell your own story. You have maybe about like five minutes or so. To just give a give a story about who you are, how you got here. Um, you can talk about family. You can talk about your background. You can talk about geography. You know, share as much as or as little as you want. Um, but we'll have the have you all go in the same order again. So I'll start. It's funny because I was just going through a uh, an interview process and had to do like a similar exercise of kind of like tell your origin story and. Um, kind of find some points of interest to anchor it along the way. And maybe it's just because I've heard myself tell it a lot, but I just, I really, I think I've got a really underwhelming uh, story in, in the face of like all of, all of the existential threats and kind of chaos going around us. Um, I am a place-based person. I grew up in Seattle. I've spent most of my life in Seattle or Washington. Most of my family is around the Puget Sound. We've got some uh, renegade folks in Colorado, but the majority of my family and my wife's family are in kind of the Puget Sound region. Um, I spent a good chunk of my time um, early in my career as a farmer over in East King County. 
and I worked on uh, an organic row crop farm and uh, helped sell vegetables at farmers markets and try to develop uh, more infrastructure for sustainable agriculture. And then worked on a nonprofit um, that helps support kind of local small scale farms across the state, um, which then led me to working on a bill um, in the state legislature, the local farms, healthy kids bill. And the whole point of that was to try and uh, allow school districts to purchase food from local farmers instead of buying it from Sodexo and some of the kind of the major corporate entities. Um, and so that was my first taste of like policy and politics because you had like anti-poverty folks, you had uh, educators, you had faith-based community, um, you certainly had farmers. So you had kind of this motley crew of folks who normally might not talk to each other, kind of working together to do what seemed like a fairly common sense thing, both for kids to get them access to healthier fruits and vegetables, and then to help support our local economy and local farmers. And so that I was after that, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I want to do this. So I packed up my one suit and I went to Washington, D.C. in the middle of August and coming from Seattle, I had no idea what humidity was and was just absolutely gross knocking on like the door of all the congressional delegation being like, will you please take me in? I don't know anyone here and I've got one suit. And of course, August, everyone's like gone from D.C., right? They know better than to be there and all the members are back in their districts and whatnot. Anyway, Jay Inslee's office finally took pity on me and let me become an intern. So I worked there and kind of worked in his office in D.C. Then I moved back to his district office, which was then District 1, which was out of Shoreline. Um, and then worked on his gubernatorial campaign in 2012. And uh, then moved over to the chamber in 2013. And I've been there ever since, so like seven years. So that's kind of my professional life, going from farmer to chamber of commerce. It's kind of an odd, odd path. And then I have a family. I've got two kids. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and a wife. Uh, we live um, in Seattle. And so it's been really, I would say that one of the silver linings of um, all the life-altering events of 2020 is there's just been a lot more family time. There's a lot, been a lot more family discussion. There's been a lot more cooking, which I love, and food. And that's kind of our my, my broader family's way of coming together. So even though we can't necessarily be together, there's been a lot of like Zoom cooking classes and just a lot of thinking about food because that's been like a constant source of um i guess safety among all of the all the craziness um and so that's that's me in a nutshell um born and raised in seattle still here still loving it still very much believing that uh we can and should do better in this in the city in this region and that there's a huge amount of opportunity even though it feels very tenuous right now um as i said in the in my intro like when when enough people get upset change often follows and I'm excited to see how that, um, how that happens and how I can be a part of it. Hmm. Thanks Markham. That's a, uh, I, I had no idea that you were a farmer and uh, that's that, that whole, like, you know, I, what I love, I love that. I love about this podcast is that people get to talk, talk about themselves, about their history, who they are. So yeah, no idea. Farm to farm to politics, to commerce, maybe yeah. not farm to table, but farm to, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Garmai, why don't you uh, tell us your story? Absolutely. Uh, my story starts before I was born, like many of ours. My parents were living in Ethiopia. They are Ethiopian. And in the 1980s, a civil war broke out and they actually had to flee 
across the border into Sudan to seek refuge. And then I was born there in Sudan. When I turned three, we boarded a plane and flew across the Atlantic Ocean to the U.S. And I grew up in South Seattle since I was three years old uh, in places like Holly Park, Rainier Vista, Skyway, low-income public housing areas, um, Franklin High School graduate. Frank, are you Quaker too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a Quaker, but I coached there for seven years. So I just okay. like, I bring, I have a Quaker tattoo. So yeah, absolutely. Do you really have a tattoo? <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I lost a bet to my high school kids. That's a story for another podcast. That's amazing. I lost a bet to my high school kids, oh. my first tattoo. I have a Quaker's tattoo in the back of my shoulder. Yep. Okay, I got to see that at some point. Are you allowed to show us on the podcast? Uh, I, I will send you a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in uh, the South in single parent household. No, neither of my parents went to college or high school. Even I'm the first in my family to graduate and get my degree. And so I watched my single mother who had to work three jobs to pay the rent struggle. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, usually if we're talking about the American dream, the idea is that people work those kinds of jobs and over time they make more money, they find more security and they can retire and live a dignified life. But we all know that's not how it works. So, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, she's still working that those same kind of jobs, making $10, $11, $12, and finally $15 an hour because of the minimum wage change. Uh, but that kind of work really brutalized her body. She was doing uh, nursing assistant work, which is work where you have to really pick people up, move them around 16 hours a day. And she worked until she busted both her knees and she can't work anymore. And that's the American dream that I know. People have to work until they no longer can and their bodies are broken down all for a profit um, and they can't afford an increasingly expensive Seattle. So people are getting pushed out of South Seattle. People are getting pushed into Skyway and South King County. I'm seeing that happen more and more and more. So clearly our system is not working for the average working person. And that's a big problem. Seeing that kind of struggle all around me. And I told the story of my mom, but that's the story of tens of thousands of people who live in this region. Um, seeing that happening all around me led me to work in the anti-poverty space. My first job after college was an anti-poverty fellowship program where I worked in uh, low-income urban areas around the U.S., including Brooklyn, um, New York. Uh, we did work in Kentucky a little bit where we were engaging low-income neighborhoods to see what they need to live healthier lives. And we partnered with a lot of community health organizations, did a lot of research and data. And then finally, we took that research and data and I worked in Washington, D.C. right after that to lobby members of Congress and show them what's going on in poor urban neighborhoods all around the U.S. to try to hopefully pass federal legislation that would benefit low-income people. Um, when I was in D.C., I saw that so many people out there had a law degree and it felt like that was a, a way to get access into policy making. So I went to law school, um, then worked in New York at a law firm for a few years and then finally moved back to Seattle, my hometown, and started a nonprofit here that where we can um, mentor youth who don't have 
parents who've gone to college or high school, just like myself, um, and provide them access to job opportunities, leadership training, kind of like a leadership tomorrow for middle school students, Frank. Nice, nice. Um, and then in 2019, I ran for office. I ran for King County Council to try and address many of those regional systemic issues that I had described before. So here we are now. Yeah. Yeah, here we are. Um, I love that both of you are in D.C., potentially at the same time, um, <laughs> working around anti-poverty, working around families. Um, and I have, a, I have a suspicion that Colleen may also have worked on those things. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Colleen, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, well, again, thank you, Frank, so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. Um, you know, my, my origin story really goes back to um, my traditional homelands, which are Kansas and Nebraska. Um, the Pawnee Nation was, is uh, a strong agricultural community. Um, we were known for our um, uh, really amazing agricultural um uh, methods so that, you know, not only were we, did we have, you know, these villages that had, you know, farms on them, but we could leave them and go um, follow the buffalo and come back and there'd be all this bountiful um, food for our community. Um, but in the um, late 1800s, um, we joined, you know, thousands and millions of other native people who were moved off of our traditional homelands into um, the most unhospitable place that there was at the time, Oklahoma. Um, my ancestors, the, the little translation or what they, they called Oklahoma in our language translates to just hot, hot place um, because that's where we're there. The U.S. government was moving native people at the time to a place where nobody wanted. Um, wasn't good farmland and wasn't a good place for, um, you know, the, the, the colonizers to be. And so um, at, and along the way, we lost thousands and thousands and thousands of our community in the mid 1850s. There was about 15,000 Pawnee people. By the time uh, in 1910, there was only 600 of us left. So I'm a, I'm a descendant of folks who survived a genocide. Um, I'm very um, um, honored to, um, I remember them. I think of them all the time in the work that I do, um, that they, um, that they um, suffered for me to be here and for me to do the work that I, I get to do now. Um, I am, um, as I said earlier in my introduction, that I'm an urban native. About 60 to 75% of nat native people now live in urban centers. And so, um, and, and this wasn't really clear to the, to the, uh, to anyone until um, our last census. And we saw that, that, that number and it kind of blew everybody's minds, but it also made sense. Um, because in 1956, there was government um, policy that said Bureau of Indian Affairs that, that removed was called the Indian Relocation Act and moved Native people into cities, including Seattle. So I've been here now for 20 years. Um, I am uh, the executive director at Chief Seattle Club. And I, I think a lot about the connection back to my homelands, back to um, sustainability back to an agricultural community where we um, provided for everyone um, abundantly. I think back to our traditional housing methods, the traditional housing methods, methods of the Coast Salish communities, which we're in right now, um, which were um, abundant and thriving. And now I work um, and serve folks who are experiencing homelessness. So if you're American Native, Alaska Native in our region here in King County, you're 15% 
Uh, we're 15% of the homeless population. We make up less than 1% of the total population. So my work has now um, shifted to finding sustainable practices to ensure that our relatives are brought into sustain into housing. That's included, um, including um, building our own housing now. So I'm in the middle of, of two really huge projects, which will bring on over 200 units of housing. One is All All, which is the Lachutzi word for home. Um, it'll be the first building in downtown um, that has a Lachutzi name. Uh, and that's 80 units of housing in 2021. And then in 2022, Sacred Medicine House will be complete. Um, and we are so proud of that work. We feel that this is like the justice work for our community. Um, a friend of um, of mine accused me of being a developer about two years ago, and I was so resistant. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not one of those people. Um, however, I have started to embrace that. Um, when we think about uh, Native community, we were developers. We had our own planning processes. We had mm. our own ways of architecture and design. And so now I'm I'm reclaiming that word to be a word and, and a and a and a profession that is about justice. It's about um, uh, encouraging and focusing Indigenous people in this process and, and ensuring that not only me, but everyone on my staff, everyone of our relatives who've been a part of this community engagement and then also design processes, that they know that, that we are doing this and that they are a part of a movement to ensure that BIPOC community and indigenous community is housed and secure and that we can um, live and thrive in, in this, in this community. So, um, and, and just to loop it back to farms, we also just started um, a new project called Sovereignty Farms, which is in South King County, um, which will be about um, as my, um, the, the manager of that program, she says our, our theme for this project Sovereignty Farms is indigenous hands and indigenous lands. So more Ooh. to come on that. Check out our website about Sovereignty Farm. Very cool. Yes. And in our description, we'll link all these uh, different attributes and projects and websites uh, for everyone to, to get easy access to. There's a lot yet you all said around like sustainability, you know, access, uh, a surplus. When I spoke with uh, some members of the Duwamish tribe, when I first started my work here mm-hmm. with the Civic Commons, and I probably said this in the pod, in a previous podcast, but it's mm-hmm. bears repeating. When I talked about belonging, um, the idea that you know surplus that uh, 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 the the Puget Sound region being a place of plenty, that the mm-hmm. Coast Salish people always knew that there was mm-hmm. abundance here in cedar and salmon, um, hospitality, mm-hmm. but they knew that it had to be uh, stewarded properly. It had to be stewarded collectively, mm-hmm. and. I still believe that. I think we all believe that this region has enough for everyone. There's enough here for everyone. Uh, we, we have not been stewarding it collectively. We haven't been stewarding it properly. And really we've taken it obviously out of the hands of the folks who actually were the first stewards of this land. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much to learn from native traditions and native practices. And I love that, you know, Colleen, you've been taking those practices and putting them into this and reclaiming the work developer, yeah. which I love. I think that whole story and how that comes back to, to reclaiming things yeah. is really important. Yeah. If I can just say one quick yeah, thing about that, but that part of it is that, um, you know, it, we're building in Pioneer Square, like the, uh, and I say in air quotes, the oldest district in Seattle, um, which is t- 
totally not true, but um, <laughs> I had this conversation with a, a friend of mine who's muckle shoot and we happened to be, I was showing her some of our plans and stuff. And she goes, you know what? Um, this is so interesting. She has like this area where you guys are building is right where um, our family used to do duck hunting. And, and, um, and we just started talking about duck hunting and like the, the process of, you know, the, the ways that the Coast Salish communities move through this region and, um, and a lot of them did. A lot of tribes came through, you know, what we call Seattle now. And um, it, it really, um, it was really beautiful because I come from a, um, a, a sustainable or a subsistence lifestyle. Um, I grew up in rural Alaska um, um, and I, um, we, we hunted, fished, gathered about 50% of our food. And that is, that is the heart of the work I want to do in development is subsistence mm. is saying to my community, your home is here. Your your work is here. Your life is here. Your community is surrounding you. Food is abundant, you know. And um, I I so value the the Coast Salish communities, and I value my my uh, friend Valerie is when he told me this um, from Muckleshoot. Hi, Valerie Seagrest. Um, and 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 the, we it's important for us to know like what what did we do? What was going on here long before? colonization came into this space and how do we how do we honor the land and honor the people by um encouraging those kind of activities as we, as we move forward as a community it's, mm. it, it brings us back to belonging absolutely absolutely thank you for doing that and, and 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 adding that extra piece at the end that's great mm -hmm. to to hear and think about um Okay. So the final part of the podcast is the chance now that you know you've heard each other's stories that you um shared your thoughts around the election, around belonging and othering, that hopefully there's a little bit of connection and a little bit more uh, awareness of each other. Um, and now it's a chance to just talk about a project that you are working on. It could be in the world of work, what your organization's doing. It could be a volunteer uh, uh, thing that you want to uh, amplify. It could be your side hustle, whatever you want to talk about. And so we'll go in the same order uh, as before. Can I can I briefly pitch two things? One, oh, one professional, yeah, one personal? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so on the professional side, um, one of, so the chamber is kind of like this weird octopus organization where there's the chamber and then there's all sorts of uh, other affiliated organizations like Leadership Tomorrow. They're, they're one of our, our family. Um, and another one of our family is Housing Connector, which I think is just a really uh, innovative program that's working with the landlord side um, to try and make sure that they're holding units open and trying to reduce barriers for people experiencing homelessness to get stable housing. Um, and it's been really successful so far since the launch, we've housed over a thousand people um, and we'll continue to do so and are looking to expand it. So I think the the pitch is we want to expand this beyond just King County. We want to expand it throughout the region and hopefully throughout the state. And then certainly looking at other uh, metropolitan areas with similar issues and thinking, can this model work there? It is not the silver bullet, like it's not going to solve homelessness, um, but it is a really key uh, program that can help open up new units. And then I think the magic of it is changing the stigma around homelessness, who experiences it, and then how they, um, when they're housed, uh, what the expectations are from the landlord. So a lot of landlords are worried about like property destruction or like, oh man, if I rent to a homeless person, it's going to be X, Y, Z or thing that I'm going to have to worry about. Um, and yet what we're finding is when we're housing these people, they're, they're some of their best tenants. Like it's not, they're like those, those stigmas and those kind of, uh, prejudices evaporate. And then that allows the, that 
landlords, some of these landlords uh, or property owners have, you know, massive amounts of housing to all of a sudden say, you know, maybe I don't need a criminal background check. Maybe I don't need some of these uh, key pieces that have been barriers to entry to get people housed, um, which can then either turn into policy and actually show that like this is on a broad scale, something that we want to have happen, or even just in kind of in the immediate term allows more people to find more access to housing, which I just think is kind of the secret magic of that program. Mm-hmm. The second one that I'd pitch is a small program called Green Plate Special. And this goes back to my love of food and thinking that it's just a great educational tool and a way for belonging. And they've got a small plot of land um, down off Rainier Avenue and they work with kids um, typically low income kids and bring them in, teach them how to farm, teach them how to use their products, um, what they grow in the kitchen. Uh, and it's just a great way to get people to connect directly to the land, understand where their food comes from, uh, really have a deep appreciation for how it gets made and the people who make it. And then they get to eat well. And so I think that, you know, that, that type of reward system where you eat well at the end of your uh, hard project is almost always a great way to make people feel like they belong, um, as well as make sure that they're healthy and doing well when whatever they do next. Mm, awesome. Yeah. I think about, I mean, that reminds me of like organizations like Feast and anything that you can bring young people and food and skills and sustainability and subsistence, I think is really powerful. So yeah, thanks for sharing Markham. Uh, Gurmai, what's something that you are working on or that you want to pitch? Yeah, I'll share two quick things. First one is the Youth Achievement Center. We're working on uh, two buildings in South Seattle, which would be for housing and supportive services for youth in the South End. So we know that housing instability is at the core of so many of the issues that we want to solve in our region, whether it's a homelessness or criminal activity at the youth level or mental health um, conditions that we want to resolve, providing a safe place for young people to go and get support and live and sleep is critical to that. So the Youth Achievement Center would provide just that. We're going to be diving into a capital campaign sometime soon. So if people want to get involved in that, we'd love your support on that. Second thing is, uh, Markham uh, mentioned this before, but the King County Charter Amendments just passed by comfortable margins in uh, on the November ballot. And uh, there are seven of them, but two of them in particular would allow us to restructure our system of public safety at the King County Sheriff's Office. The first one would switch the sheriff's office from an elected position to an appointed position, which would allow more accountability. And the second one, which is Charter Amendment number six, would allow the King County Council to bring about the future of public safety. Many people have been marching in the streets this year saying that we need to shift away from a system of law enforcement that deploys armed police officers to respond to every situation that we see to one that looks more like a diverse menu of public health and community-based responses. So hopefully now, because these charter amendments passed, we can begin to shape a future where when you pick up the phone and call 911 and because you see a mental health crisis, we can send mental health crisis officers, trained public health professionals. If you see uh, encampments and unhoused people struggling, you're not sending people with guns, you're sending rapid response social workers and other people can, who can quickly connect um, our struggling communities to the resources that they need. If our youth are getting into trouble, it's not armed police officers going into public schools, but instead 
violence interrupters and trusted mentors who work with the youth who can engage in healing circles and other data-driven responses that are better for youth and don't drive them through the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are all things that are now possible because of the passage of these charter amendments. They passed despite the police union spending $217,000 to defeat them, uh, which is just, you know, pretty obscene, especially when you consider that they were spending it on a misinformation campaign. Uh, I saw commercials saying that these charter amendments would dismantle human trafficking response for some reason. That's a claim that they made. Um, But now we have a good opportunity to shape the future of public safety in our region, and people are welcome to reach out to our office to get involved in that. And again, remember, this relates to King County Sheriff's Office, not the Seattle Police Department, which is an important distinction because I get all kinds of emails about SPD, and I'm like, wrong government. Adjacent, but uh, but not your 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 your, your, your jurisdiction. Um, yeah, these, these charter amendments are amazing. Uh, you're talking about the youth uh, opportunity, youth what, what was it called? The uh, youth, youth achievement. achievement. And just a quick uh, side story: when I left for uh, South Korea on this like temporary visit, which may be now longer term, uh, I had left my apartment in the South End in the hands of some of the young people that I coached at Franklin, who are like young men now. And, you know, they kind of use it as a spot to just like hang out, spend some time uh, enjoying, you know, the TV and the Netflix and just like get away from there, you know, because they all live with relatives. But uh, I asked one of the young men who uh, coached the ultimate team with me uh, towards the end. I was like, oh, who's staying at my spot? Are you guys using it? And he's like, actually, and I won't name the names, but two young people who graduated from Franklin recently are unhoused and they've been staying Mm -hmm. at my spot. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's not really uh, within the uh, my lease agreement <laughs> contract. Like, you know, people aren't supposed to be living there, but there's no sublease uh, contract. But, you know, that made me feel really good about, like, the idea that people are using space uh, that they need, that the, it, they were able to stay there for, like, you know, eight weeks and just, you know, not have to pay rent, uh, have a place to sleep, have a place to live. And that was really, like, it made me feel really good. But, like, a place like... um a center that actually, you know, gives young people space to like be housed and and be safe and like, you know, have opportunity, especially staying in the neighborhoods that they grew up in and the South End, I think is really important. So thanks for, thanks for uh, pitching that. Thanks for talking about it. And I'm so glad that we uh, passed it um, as a county. Okay. Uh, last, but definitely not least, uh, Colleen, what is uh, something that you are working on? Great. Well, I've got um, a couple projects I want to share. The first one is, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we are building all all, which is, uh, again, the Lashutsi word for home. If we lived in a really just society, we'd all be speaking Lashutsi right now. Um, but, um, you know, we're excited about the park that's right outside of our building. Right now it's called Fortson Square. We plan on, on changing that. Um, and we also have um, just gotten enough funding to redevelop that park. Um, and it's called, um, Fort, you know, I mentioned it's called Fortune Square right now. But I, we think it'll be the first park that has um, been, uh, we're, we're taking a step back and we're reimagining it with, from an indigenous um, land 
use. Um, we want it to be a great place for everybody. We're right by, it's right off of the Pioneer light, uh, light Rail Station. So we want, you know, our commuters and our residents, our business owners, the, new, the homeless community to feel great in this space. And we're going to um, in, and fill it with indigenous design, indigenous plants, um, indigenous use um, that will be important for everyone. So you can follow that project on our Growing Old podcast, which the first season is out. Um, the, where the second season, we're going to focus on the redevelopment of this space um, and the reimagining of this space. The reason it's important is that we, in, in major cities across the country, including Seattle, which is the only um, major city that's named after a chief, there is very little indigenous design anywhere. Think about it. Like you can, it's hard to name one, right? So um, part of um, what we're doing is also um, bringing back the traditional Coast Salish welcome figure. Um, we're working with an artist called Andrea Wilbersigo. It's all in the Seattle Times today, actually. Um, and she uh, is going to be carving a welcome figure that's going to be about 20 feet. Now, keep in mind, these are these were normal back before colonization, before they burned down the longhouses. These were a part of normal society in this region. So we're excited to do that. I um, invite you to follow along with us at, um, on our website and also at the Growing Old podcast, which is connected to our website. Um, the last thing I'll mention is um, something that um, Markham actually knows quite a bit about is um, the Equitable Recovery and Reconciliation Alliance. This is a project that I've been working on with uh, my co-conspirator and old friend, Ben Franz Knight. Um, this is a way that we believe we can get past the lip service that a lot of our wonderful white relatives out there have done. Um, moving beyond just posting um, in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter in social media, but actually following BIPOC leadership um, and, and moving forward in a way that um, truly honors the Coast Salish values of hospitality, um, Coast Salish values of welcoming and inclusivity. So um, that is not on our website yet, but it will be shortly and that you can follow all of us on the Chief Seattle Club social media, also on um, my social medias um, as well. So those are just two that I'm very excited about and hope that you all get connected with. Thank you so much. Uh, the Growing Old podcast is a favorite of mine. I'm really excited for mm -hmm. season two and this focus. Um, so I definitely uh, encourage our listeners to to go online and find that podcast and listen to the series. Uh, they're great. The music's great. The locations are great. You learn a lot about our own um, forests and trees and horticulture mm. and plants. And, and so it's just really, really good. Uh, uh, highly recommend. But, um, you know, I think I want to thank my guests because, you know, I entered this podcast today, you know, with a, the weight of so much uncertainty and the weight of, you know, four years. But beyond that, you know, four, six hundred years of you know colonization and stolen lands and enslavement. Um, and, you know, I think about like the Chinese Exclusion Act and I think about all these things that, mm. you know, America has a hard time with just facing its own history, right? There's a lot of like uh, an unwillingness to face up to the history. And that's, you know, we, we can't get to reconciliation. Mm -hmm. We can't get to uh, new dreams or new reimaginations without some healing, without some actual like just really saying it out loud, acknowledging the, the, all the things that have happened. Right. And not not dwelling on it as a place where we, we we're stuck there, but really facing up to it and being honest about it um, and then letting that really transform us, you know, as a people. Right? There was a really good, um, 
you know, I forget who was who was saying it and what what broadcast. It might have been CNN or MSNBC or someplace else. But a commentator was just talking about like this idea that we need to face up to our own history because it's dark, it's troubled, it's a uh, really awful. And now so many other countries have faced up to their histories, you know, and, and really came out of that moment in a different way. And we just refuse to do that in, as a country. But as we are faced with this like darkness, uncertainty, you know, being in community with you all, thinking about the work that you do, the places that you're from, the things that you care about, the passions that you have, you know, it, it definitely, I leave this podcast with a lot more hope and a lot more um, yeah. excitement about our region's future because there's, you know, great folks like yourselves, great other uh, great folks that we've had on the podcast before um, who are just working so hard and who have been working so hard and our ancestors and our families and our generations before us have been working so hard to get to where we are. Mm -hmm. And we know that what we can do is try to create something that's better, more sustainable, more connected for our own future generations, right? So they have it better than we do. And, uh, and I think that's definitely possible with all the work that y'all are doing. So I want to thank my guests. I want to thank, uh, you know, our uh, musical uh, uh, friend, Big Phony, whose uh, intro and outro music we use uh, every podcast. And uh, as always, I ask you to stay safe, be healthy, build bridges, and remember that we all belong here. Thanks, everyone. 